Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Challoner and you join us on a cloudy autumn day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on today's programme, I'm delighted to have Dave Morgan alongside me. Dave is the director and founder of Spartan Audiovisual, a live event production and audiovisual installation company. Uh, Dave, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. Hello, Scott. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves. Um, The whole reason we're here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. And normally we dive straight into that subject. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I do feel it's appropriate that we start there because it has proven to be one of the most significant challenges for leaders in all walks of life, probably of our time, I think it's fair to say. But in your industry, Dave, just to what extent has it affected you and your operations? So um, maybe some of your listeners are, are familiar with um, uh, the, the challenges that some of our uh, peers and colleagues in the industry um, are having as well as, as, as us, um, where we traditionally you know, supplied audio and audiovisual equipment and staff for, for event production, um, which at the minute is, is essentially um, you know, completely off the cards. Uh, we focused on national touring, live music events, as well as grassroots music events. Uh, mostly in South Wales. Um, so we've obviously had to uh, stomach it and face a complete loss of, of all revenue uh, on that front. Um, luckily, we have a, another revenue stream in, in sort of live in, uh, in, in event um, uh, venue installation uh, and also the more corporate um, uh, audiovisual aspects. So we sort of turned um, to some projects that we've had on, on a long burn to support the business through the COVID-19 crisis when the, the event uh, production has fallen away. So uh, we're probably a little bit more fortunate than some of our peers in the industry on that front, uh, but we're still obviously uh, struggling um, to, to find to find a purpose uh, for, for a lot of the, the staff that we have mm. on the book. And with regard to that live event side of things, even if we fast forward, say, one or two years, when hopefully by then COVID-19 will no longer be an issue, because of the features mm-hmm. that have come into place during the lockdown period, can you see the industry ever going back to how it was before? Or do you think that hangover will essentially be there to stay? Mm. Uh, I think perhaps th- this is maybe where somewhere where I, w- I would start to diverge from from a lot of my peers. Uh, I-, I'm, I remain sceptical that events will, will go back to anything that looks like they did before. Um, I think that's that's a challenge um, that, that might not even be worth sort of taking on. I think we have to accept that some things will change, you know, for at least the foreseeable future because of this, this crisis. Um, and I, I think it's up to us in our industry to take that head on and, and innovate and, and make sure we're, we're looking for ways to get around that, but also to accept it. Um, yeah, so I, I, I don't think we'll be going back to, you know, thousands of sweaty people in, mm. in, a, in a tiny box with no ventilation anytime soon, no. Yes, it's going to be changing times for sure. Um, and it has been such yeah. an unprecedented uh, challenge. And 
it's brought about such incredible changes in such a short space of time. I can imagine that when you first founded your business 11 years ago, there was sort of no predicting that this certainly would be on the horizon within um, just a little over a decade. Um, if we just sort of switch focus from the here and now ever so slightly and back to, mm-hmm. to that sort of time now, uh, Dave, um, from a leadership perspective, what was the inspiration behind building up your own business? What was that sort of moment when you knew that sort of going into business for yourself taking on that leadership of your own was going to be the way forward for you yeah i think um i i spent a, a little bit of time working for for other production companies in broadcast and um for that i've been a freelancer so I, i'd always worked for myself and that, that was just something that i i sort of knew that i was i was always going to do and then i, I met um the other uh, two directors uh, whilst working in, in a live music venue and we clearly had the same sort of um, ingrained idea of, of what it meant to be in, in our industry and a, and a sort of a young man's view of uh, of how that would, would play out, which now with the, the benefit of hindsight is, you know, wildly, mm. <laughs> wildly uh, far away from the re- reality. But um, yeah, we, we sort of just got together and, and decided that we were going to, we we're going to go in a, in a direction which was, was forward. And that was, it was always a case of trial and error. Um, but it, it served us well, you know. We managed to. We got together slightly before we started the business as, uh, as a limited company. So there were we were effectively sort of trading in partnership all the way through the financial um, crash, the, the, the recession in two thousand eight. So we we kind of got experience with building a business and growing a business through uh, maybe against the grain, so mm. to speak, um, and through through a crisis. So yeah, ho- hopefully we can <laughs> channel back into some of that now. And having negotiated like that crisis back in 2008 and now, of course, you're facing another one. What would you say was sort of the greatest learning curve of those experiences? Uh, I think it's, it's, it's never to lose hope and, and just to, to make sure that you don't let external forces take you off your course and, and take you off your plan. You know, obviously you shouldn't just stick with a course of action because you decided to go down that road, but you've got to have a level of faith um, and, and some flexibility uh, as well. So, you know, if you've always got, if you've got a good trap door or a plan B, um, there's always usually a way to, to navigate around external circumstances and still come up with, with something that looks, you know, close to what you set out to do in the first place. Uh, I think that's, one of the things that really helped us then was that it's kind of that trial and error that I was talking about. Mm. You know, you you know when something feels like it's going to work uh, and you can go down that road and then you should be able to get some data or some response that shows you, yeah, this is going to work. Um, And if not, you know, onto the next thing. Um, It's kind of that entrepreneurial um, spirit being applied a little more practically than perhaps it's it's usually applied. Um, Yeah. I would say that leadership is, well, a lot about leadership is trial and error, isn't it? Because it's a constant process of learning and development. Even when we are in leadership roles, we are never a finished product, as it were. And there are always things that we can pick up and learn. And a lot of that is not just from learning from others, but also learning from experience as well. And then when mistakes are made, it's about dusting yourselves down, not having the blame culture in place and just embracing that learning curve and getting on with it, using that to improve. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I particularly prescribe to a sort of a culture, an open culture uh, and a culture of honesty and, and trying not to lead from, from the back either. Um, it's, 
yeah, it, 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 it's good to make mistakes in, in a lot of ways, uh, especially when you're in an industry like ours where particularly when we talk about, you know, installation and, and emerging technologies, there is always more than one way to achieve an end goal nowadays. So you have to be prepared to sort of poke around in the dark to some extent, but also not spend too much time there and be able to bring other people in and, and you know, if very junior staff or even experienced staff, they, they can have a conversation about these solutions and challenges on the same sort of level and feel like they're able to bring things up to someone who might be a, a you know mm-hmm. the owner of a company. Um, you know, when you're, you're trying to navigate a crisis, you need communication and you need people not to be, you know, to feel like they can't bring something to you uh, or ask something of you either. Um, that's just, that always has worked well for me um, with, you know, working with, with other people. Mm. And running a business and in both a crisis and during, uh, well, an everyday scenario, I suppose, just how important is mental health within leadership? And the reason that I ask that question mm. is because it's been thrust back into the limelight of the national discussion by the COVID-19 situation, not just because of all of the uncertainty around employment and about people's health that it's caused among employees, but also the fact that leaders have had to be careful to safeguard their own mental well-being because a lot of pressure has come onto them at this time to keep that reassurance flowing to the people around them to try and provide some inspiration and direction. And sometimes it can be a little bit much, can't it? Well, that's right. I mean, you, you have to be very careful with, with your resource bucket to, you know, kind, kind of a mental health term there. It's, you can give your resources to, to others, which is something that a good leader should do, you know, be able to listen and, and empathise and use theory of mind to, to really understand what might be going on with your staff. And obviously in the, you know, with everything that's going on now, staff, all staff will be concerned that they won't have a job, especially in our industry. Um, happy to say that we, we're going to be able to save all of our staff's jobs. Um, but that's it's not been easy to achieve. Um, so we hope that that goes some way to, stabilizing any sort of worries that people might have, but you can't, as a leader, you can't help other people with anything unless you look after yourself. And that's something that I've seen um, take other people apart uh, on a leadership level uh, firsthand before in the past. And I try my best not to do it, but we're we're only human. And Mm. the current situation is, yeah, there's no rule book. Um, that I'm aware of for what we're going through at the moment. There isn't exactly, and you do raise a valid point there that as humans, we're not infallible and there will always be things that we can do better. But again, it's all about that process of learning as we've gone over already. And thinking about taking that into the future, I would like to address the future just before we do wrap things up on the program today, Dave. Um, Just because we know that we're probably still going to be in this for the long haul, Um, just for the benefit of those listening to this, we are recording on the 29th of September 2020. So just in the previous week, um, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson has announced that there will be more national COVID-19 restrictions coming into place, which could well be lasting for another six months yet. Um, But while we're adjusting to that and getting to grips with this new normal even further, Dave, I'm interested to understand what it is as a business that you're really hoping to achieve over this next year and indeed where you see yourselves being this time in a year. Mm-hmm. So our plan uh, currently stands um, quite simply to um, consolidate 
um, everything that we've, we've had come in, all the work we've had come in so far, which um, we've just about achieved now, um, is to secure the staff's um, position and our own position as directors, um, which largely comes off the back of consolidating that existing workload. Um, and then the next phase that we're moving into now is to uh, reskill um, and train to keep up with with emerging technologies. Um, so one of the things that I actually feel like um, in, in the AV industry and the audiovisual industry is, is an issue is that a large part of the industry, I feel, are kind of behind the curve when it comes to innovation and new technologies. It's quite a slow-moving industry in terms of adoption, which is perhaps seem, might seem a little odd to some of the listeners. But um, you know, when it comes to user experience, for example, the industry tends to move at a much slower pace than front-end developers would, would move and when it comes to uh, adopting new communication technologies it's also a little bit slower so what I plan to sort of uh, go against that grain really and, and focus on um, you know AV, IT bringing computing in a lot more um, unified communication video conferencing, we're already picking up lots of work in that kind of vein as, as everybody moves over to things like MS Teams, um, Zoom is also massive, um, it's a bit more challenging but yeah, that's going to be where we go with things, is, is to become much more of a technology oriented company than a, than a production uh, oriented company and that'll probably be a permanent shift I would imagine mm. It's all part of adapting and innovating isn't it, to sort of meet the demands of a changing world and I'll certainly be keeping one eye on how things are getting on over the uh, the next year and in fact Dave I have to say it would be wonderful to um, welcome you back onto the show at some point in that next 12 months just to catch up on how things are coming along in that respect Hopefully that would be a pleasure I hope so as well. Um, I'm really hoping there'll be some positive news to uh, to share at that point in time um, as well. And we can just reassess how far the country's come since then as well. Um, mm-hmm. In the meantime, please do continue to take care and stay safe with everything still going on. And I shall look forward to uh, hopefully speaking with you again. Yeah, you too, Scott. You too, Scott. Thanks. Bye now. It's been a pleasure, Dave. Um, it was a real pleasure to welcome Dave Morgan onto the programme today. He is, of course, to remind you, director and founder of Spartan Audio Visual. I would also reiterate that last message there to every single one of our listeners tuning into this. Do please continue to look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it makes a real, real difference in saving lives. Um, next up on the programme today, we'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett, who enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth. Lord Blunkett held a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet during his time as an MP, in which he served as the Member of Parliament for the Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He became a member of the Upper House of Parliament back in August 2015. And I do hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, 
declined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff, and of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system, we're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the prime minister's 
a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and... Um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting 
what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, 
people with behavioural science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centres in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. Because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains 
and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where 
people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways, uh, supportable opposition. 
as well as a government, but we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset 
Andy has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.